Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, and we will see how God raises up His army, and at the very moment of their conversion, that He equips them for their kingdom living. Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized to have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Amen. Father God, we look to your word and we pray that as... I preach it that you would uh, take these feeble lips and that you would use them by the power of your Holy Spirit to build up your people, that you would keep me from uh, speaking error, and that you would uh, enable each one of us to worship you and to delight in you and to be empowered as your word does its sanctifying work within us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Back in 2002... Um, word for today told the story of a spoiled 18-year-old son of a, a very wealthy Christian man. And this wealthy father really wanted his son to have a gospel focus, but the son really was captured by materialism. And it seemed that the son had uh, a deep-seated bitterness to his father that his father was frustrated by, was not knowing how in the world to handle it. He tried to connect with his son in various ways and was not being very successful. And he knew that his son wanted to have a sports car for his graduation present. And he was wrestling with how in the world to give this present. Well, finally, he called his son into the office, told his son that he loved him very much and that he had this present for him for graduation. And uh, the son unwrapped the present and found a box with a Bible, a leather-bound Bible inside with his name that was written on the spine. And he angrily threw the box on his dad's desk and stormed out and said, with all the money you have and all you can buy me is a Bible. And that was the last he had talked to his dad. Uh, A couple years later, he found out that his dad had died and that he had inherited uh, his dad's uh, wealth. And as he was going through his father's belongings, he noticed the Bible he had put back onto the desk uh, was still there. And he felt really guilty, so he flipped through the Bible and it naturally opened up to a place where his dad had marked Matthew 7, verse 11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father give what is good to those who ask him? And the page was bookmarked with a key and the tag on the key was the dealer's name. He had been given the car that he had wanted uh, years ago. And on the backside of that tag was the date of his graduation with these words written, paid in full, love dad. Well, it broke the kid's heart and he was never the same after that. It really um, affected him. He never got over that. But he had been so preoccupied with wanting a gift that he had completely lost the father's love. Uh, In effect, the father had been trying to tell his son, yes, God's interested in you enjoying the good gifts of life, but he doesn't want you to ignore him as the ultimate giver. And I'm trying to adjust your perspective. Well, obviously, he was not successful 
in working with his son on that. But as we look at this passage this morning, I want you to evaluate what your chief treasure is. In this passage, we're going to be seeing that the pearl of great price is Jesus Christ. And if we have Jesus, we have everything else. As Romans 8.32 words it, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? With him. Jesus is the chief gift. And with Jesus, he has given us freely all things. Well, Peter has just finished telling this family about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was as soon as they believed the words of verse 43, the need to believe in Jesus, that they received the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, they received spiritual gifts. And I want to look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit and try to put it into context because I think this first point, the context, is important for understanding how freely God really loves us. There is a tendency in Christian circles to think that we can earn uh, God's good gifts. We know we can't earn salvation. And so we enter into salvation realizing that it's free. But once we're Christians, somehow we feel if we're dry and we are uh, not close to the Lord, that somehow it's not faith is not enough. We have to strive harder in order to be able to earn it. Glenn A. Reed says, unless they meet certain definite conditions and definitely seek to be filled, they cannot have the baptism. So what I want to do at the beginning here is to get some quotes from uh, Pentecostal writers of some of the conditions that they have said in the past that we need to fulfill before we can be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We're going to see they're totally foreign to this passage. Over and over again in the books that I have from uh, Pentecostals, they say we must empty ourselves of all sin. Charles W. Kahn says, You can receive the Holy Spirit, but not with sin in your heart. The Holy Spirit and sin cannot abide in the same heart. Now, the question I would pose to those people is, how in the world are you going to get rid of sin without the Holy Spirit? It's the Holy Spirit who enables us to do that. 1 Peter 1.22 says, you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. He's saying the way that we purify our hearts, the way that we willingly and gladly have obedience is by the power of the Holy Spirit within us. It's not a condition for receiving the Spirit. Look at Acts 15 and verses 8 through 11. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He's referring back to this passage that we're preaching on. And made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. The same faith that saves us was the faith that received this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And yet, as clear as the Scripture is on this question, even a careful writer like R.A. Torrey can say, a controversy with God about the smallest thing is sufficient to shut one out of the blessing. They're seeking uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're going to be seeing that every Christian already has it at the time that they are saved, but they're seeking it by trying to provide these conditions. And what happens is it leaves people in one of two extremes. Either on the one side, they feel 
cynical about them ever being able to have the power of God's Spirit working within them, or on the other side, they lower the standards of holiness so that we can fake it. Now, we saw last week, holiness is not an option, but right now we're going to be seeing holiness is not a condition either. It's not an option, but it's not a condition. It flows out of God's grace by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, another condition that they give is that we must engage in long, intensive and persevering prayer. But the coming of this, uh, the Holy Spirit in this passage is not even in a prayer meeting at all. Now, God can do that. Uh, he did it in Acts chapter 2. He brought the Holy Spirit right in the midst of a prayer meeting. But this giving of the Holy Spirit occurred in the midst of a sermon while they were listening. Or as um, verse 44 says, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. Now contrast that um, with the conditions laid out by Pentecostals. Ralph Riggs says, the Spirit does not come when asked once. No, we must ask importunately. Without intense, persevering prayer, you won't be ushered into this promised land, is what they claim. And this is one of the reasons why they're tarrying meetings. That's where the special meetings designed to give you the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Why these tarrying meetings are such emotionally charged events. I've been to a number of these so-called tarrying meetings. And I tell you, there is incredible pressure to get these people through into the spirit, into speaking uh, in tongues. They have coaches who try to get them into a psychological state. And as soon as they start making sounds with their voice, they say, OK, you've been baptized uh, with the spirit. But the meet, this meeting of Cornelius and his household doesn't look even remotely like a tarrying meeting. Aren't any coaches to push you through? Instead, what we find in verse 45 is the Jews are astonished that they even got the Holy Spirit. They weren't helping. They weren't expecting anything. Okay, so it came just as a sovereign move of God. Notice, too, that there is no physical or emotional passivity, what they called yieldedness. Uh, that is an emotional state that is induced really in a similar way to hypnotism. Now, technically, there are some differences between the two. But it's very similar to the loss of control that is found in hypnotism. And in your outline, I give a sample quote of how they try to get you to yield every muscle, every uh, bone, every fiber in your body, your will, your emotions, everything to the Lord. Now, I'm not against yieldedness. I believe every square inch of our being needs to be yielded to the Lord and surrendered to God. But biblical surrender, biblical yieldedness is not a passive state of consciousness where you're kind of like a doormat or you're in a state where you can be easily manipulated by other people. It's incredibly active. Uh, it is characterized by the word meek. Now, some people think a meek person is a doormat, but Jesus was meek, was he not? And he was no doormat. The Greek word for meek actually was used of a wild stallion who had been uh, so perfectly trained that he used all of his strength and all of his power for the master's control. So very active. It's not a passive type of thing. Very active for the Lord. Not a doormat kind of a yieldedness. It's a biblical yieldedness. Notice, too, that this is not a second level of faith. We have, we've already seen in chapter 11 and verse 14 that uh, this would be the first level of faith, salvation. And it was at the first level of faith that the Spirit was given. Now, the faith they exercised at this point was exercised by believing the gospel message that Peter gave. Uh, verse 44 says, It was while Peter was still speaking these words 
And yet Pentecostals insist that uh, the baptism of the Spirit is a second work of grace. Now, some of them will say ordinarily it's a second work of grace, but uh, they insist it's later. A.J. Gordon says, just as there is a faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, there is a faith toward the Holy Ghost for power and consecration. And your notes, uh, I give you some of the distinctions they make. They say there are different kinds of faith that uh, need to be there. But here we see that it was faith in the gospel and faith is always founded on Scripture. What Scripture had been given to them? It was a gospel message of Peter in verses 34 and following. You will search in vain in Peter's message for any promise they could bank faith upon for a second work of grace. No, it was uh, everything flowing through faith in Jesus Christ. And so they're gospel words. The third thing that we see is that there was no laying on of hands by the apostles. Now, I'm not knocking laying on of hands because Hebrews 6.2 says it's a foundational doctrine. Uh, we have laying on of hands, you know, when we pray for healing, when there is ordination of people. But I think they carry this too far many times. For example, Hein Kuyper says, Without the laying on of hands and the receiving of the Spirit, we are not a partaker of the Spirit, and thus we have no oil in our lamps. Uh, others insist that you can't even receive the Spirit baptism uh, unless the people who have laid hands on you have the gift of laying on of hands, whatever that is. Uh, I don't see anything like that. But there aren't any mention of hands in this passage, is there? No mention of hands. Instead, they received the Spirit as a large group at the same time while listening to the message. If you examine Peter's message in verses 34 through 43, you'll see there's no manipulative words or actions to induce a psychological state. It was a sovereign move of God. He gives when and where he pleases. Now, there is one last group that I need to mention that this passage addresses, and that is the people who believe that water baptism regenerates people. Now, we do not believe that. Roman Catholics do. Uh, Roman Catholics, Greek Orthodox, High Anglicans, and uh, most Lutherans believe that water baptism actually confers regeneration. Okay, so that the water produces this baptism of the Spirit. Now, interestingly, there are even an increasing number of Baptists uh, who believe this. And I give you a sample quote in your outlines that I won't take the time to read here. When I took a course at Northwest Baptist Theological Seminary up in Vancouver, British Columbia, there were quite a few Baptists that I would get into arguments over that believed strongly in baptismal regeneration. It shocked me. I thought Baptists wouldn't believe in this. But then as I started talking with them further, I began to realize they were forced to this conclusion just through sheer logic because they believed that Romans 6 is talking about water baptism. We don't believe it's talking about water baptism. We believe there's not a drop of water in Romans 6. It's talking about what spirit baptism actually accomplishes. But the trouble is, this is their main proof text to prove immersionism. Because Romans 6 says everyone who has been baptized into Christ has died with Christ, has been buried with Christ, and has been raised with Christ. And they say this is what baptism symbolizes. Your death, burial, and resurrection up and out of the water. Well, the trouble is the passage doesn't show what baptism, water baptism symbolizes. It shows what spirit baptism actually accomplishes. What it accomplishes. We believe water baptism symbolizes the baptism of the Spirit. And how did He come? Verse 44, he, come, he came by falling upon them. 
Verse 45, by being poured out upon. I think there's where the real symbolism of the water lies in. But in order to maintain their immersionist theology, many Baptists have been forced to say you cannot separate water baptism from spirit baptism and therefore both occur in Romans 6 and therefore water baptism regenerates because I think that's the logical conclusion you have to come to if Romans 6 is talking about water baptism. And to me, it's sad to see the degree to which our theology can blind us. Now, the simple answer to baptismal regeneration is in this passage. Take a look at it. They're baptized in the Spirit before they're baptized with water. Right? I think nothing could be clearer. Baptism of the Spirit comes first in verses 44 through 45. And then after they speak for a while, they're baptized in water in verse 48. And so the clear implication is the baptism of the Spirit didn't flow out of water baptism. In, in this particular case, it was exactly the reverse. They were water baptized because they already were baptized uh, in the Spirit. They're distinct things. They were separated. And all of these additions to the gospel that we have just gone through are ways by which men try to circumvent the cross of Christ. The focus is not on Christ, the incarnate word. In fact, just like that teenager threw the boxed Bible onto the desk because his only interest was in the sports car, the incarnate word many times is treated as, okay, that's nice for salvation, but it's unimportant for the rest of our lives. The boxed book is not considered to be the real gift. Okay, it's the shiny Porsche. That's the real gift or the, the, the exciting spiritual gifts. And in our hunt for the spiritual keys to the spiritual car, we can easily ignore the fact that the word incarnate, it's in him in whom, it says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.3 In whom are hidden every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1.3 From whom every spiritual gift flows. Romans 12 In whom we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13 In whom we have boldness and access to the throne room of heaven. Ephesians 3.12 You see, it is not until we open up the book of Jesus Christ that just by simple faith that the keys fall out into our lap and we get our spiritual Porsche. It's through Christ that we have it. Now, look at the context for when the Spirit came and the gifts were given. Verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words. Now, which words were they? They're the words of the Gospel in verses 34 through 43. And more specifically... It was at the very time that he was speaking, verse 43, to him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sin. Now, there wasn't a whole lot of time for them to be processing these words that had been given to them, but somehow the Spirit of God opened their minds to understand the gospel. And at that very instant, they believed, according to when you look at 1114 and 158, their hearts were purified by faith. And they instantly received the message. Chapter 11, verse 14 says his family was saved by hearing these words. Chapter 15, 8 through 11 indicates they were regenerated. Their hearts were purified. They professed faith at this time. And verse 11 of that chapter indicates uh, even that was by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it all happened instantaneously when God took the veil off of uh, their eyes. Now, my question is, could anything be simpler? Could anything be clearer? They didn't, 
they didn't uh, earn the Spirit. They received the Spirit. They didn't take the Spirit. They received the Spirit. It's monergistic grace. Monergistic means God alone is the one uh, who is working. Now, verse 45 strengthens our thesis that there were no conditions because the Jews certainly didn't put any expectations upon the Gentiles. They didn't know what to expect. They didn't have the foggiest notion what was going to be happening here. And verse 45 says, Those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. They were astonished. They couldn't conceive of Gentiles receiving this gift of the Holy Spirit. They didn't deserve it. That's the whole point, isn't it? No one deserves it. None of us do. So that's the context. And I think that the baptism of the Spirit is such a wonderful picture of this salvation by grace. Uh, let's look at the baptism itself. This is point number two. First of all, it came, as we've already seen, at the moment of their conversion. In fact, the word baptism means an initiation. It's an initiation into some change of state. Uh, if you want a four-volume set that uh, is very boring to read but defines exhaustively this word baptizo, uh, I've got one in my dictionary, uh, uh, that dictionary in my, um, my office, four volumes. But this fat here, where they go through every time the word occurs in secular Greek language, religious, Jewish, uh, any time that the Greek word uh, occurs, and they, they, they've shown that the only definition that meets all of these uh, usages is an initiation into some change of status or being or state. And so it may be helpful to see how Acts distinguishes between the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. Uh, many people are confused by those two terms. And I know uh, even as a pastor for a couple of years, I was confused by those two. And I think it would be helpful to, to go through it. But the, the word baptism by itself, I think, helps to solve that question. It's always an initiation. It's not a continuing activity. You don't get baptized into the Spirit over and over again. You get filled over and over again, but you don't get baptized over and over again. For example, in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, both the baptism of the Spirit and it mentions the filling of the Spirit, which always, anytime there's a baptism, there will be a filling, but both of those happened to the apostles in Acts 2, but they are never again said to be baptized in the Spirit. Okay? Every time the Holy Spirit falls upon them in the book of Acts after that time, it is said to be a filling. It's not said to be a baptism. And so in Acts 4, verse 31, the apostles are gathered for another prayer meeting and it says, When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. It's not a second baptism, but it is a second filling. And we need to have a second and a third and a fourth and fifth uh, fillings of the Holy Spirit. In fact, Ephesians 5.18 uses the present continuous tense in the Greek to indicate we're always needing to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, while theologians argue about when baptism takes place, everyone is agreed we need to continually be filled with the Spirit. We need Him for our empowering. But when does the initial filling happen? In other words, when does this baptism of the Spirit happen? Some theologians emphasize Acts 1.5 and they say that this baptism occurs after conversion. Well, it did happen after conversion for the apostles, didn't it? And that's the only way it could have happened because of this transition from the Old Testament period into the New Testament period. 
um, uh, of the kingdom. They couldn't get regenerated again. But now that they're in the kingdom and they need this baptism of the Spirit, it had to be at a later time. And the reason it's called a baptism is it was their first filling. It was their initiation into these kingdom benefits. Now, if you look at anyone who was converted after Pentecost, not everybody who was baptized after Pentecost, but anyone who was converted after Pentecost, they received the baptism at the time of their conversion. And Acts 10, verse 47 would be one example. Now, others say that they can occur even earlier in the womb, but in one sense, it really doesn't matter because you cannot get filled with the Spirit until you have been baptized with the Spirit. And so, if right now you are being filled with the Spirit of God sometime in the past, you must have been baptized. So, in one sense, it doesn't matter uh, knowing when that, uh, when that occurs. But I have listed three verses in your outline that prove, at least to my satisfaction, that the spirit baptism always happens at the point of regeneration, at the point of our union with Christ. Galatians 3.7 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So baptism, what it does is it unites us to Christ. It's, it's, God chose to do it at the point of regeneration. Romans 6, 1 through 14 says that spirit baptism unites us to Jesus, enables us to enjoy all of the benefits that Jesus purchased for us. He's the book. And as we open up the pages, the keys of kingdom living begin to fall out into our laps. And if you are regenerated and you are not finding power for kingdom living, the reason is because you have been leaving the book up on the shelf. You have not been going to Jesus, who is the source of your power, who is the source of your energy for kingdom living. Everything that we need for life and godliness is found in coming in simple faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, drawing from that bank account that we have in heaven. And so the first thing that we see about the baptism of the Spirit is it's the first filling. It's the initiation into kingdom living. The second thing that we see is that this baptism is monergistic. Now, that's a $10 word uh, that uh, is made up of two words, mono, which means one, and uh, ergos, uh, or uh, it's the Greek word for working. So, monergistic, monergos, monergistic, monergistic means God alone is the one who is active. Now, let's just spell this out a little bit. God does not baptize by immersion, where we are the ones who are making all of the movement. We are going down into the Spirit and coming back out of the Spirit, as the Baptists say. Now, the activity is all with the Holy Spirit. Consistently in the book of Acts, the baptism of the Spirit was by pouring. In verse 44, it says, The Holy Spirit fell upon all those. God's the one who takes the initiative. The movement is with the Holy Spirit, not with the men, women, and children. In verse 45, it says, the Holy Spirit had been poured out. And so this baptism is monergistic. It's God's action, not our action. Now, just to anticipate point number three, uh, just very briefly, our water baptism should symbolize God's spirit baptism. That's what John the Baptist said his baptism did. It pointed forward to the coming baptism of the Spirit. And if God baptizes by pouring, shouldn't we? I believe that we should. Now, I was immersed. We accept immersion. But we don't believe it's the best mode that best symbolizes the giving of the Holy Spirit. 
In fact, every Old Testament prophecy of Pentecost, every single one without exception, speaks of this baptism of the Spirit as being the Spirit poured forth, being shed abroad upon them, or raining upon them. And the movement is always with the Spirit. So what happens here? God gets the ball of our spiritual life rolling by giving us Spirit baptism. By the way, He doesn't ask our permission to do that. These people didn't even know there was such a thing as baptism of the Spirit. God just gives it, okay? And instantaneously, there is an empowerment for service that happens. Baptism starts the empowerment for kingdom living. Filling continues that empowerment day by day. So do you understand the difference there? Now look at how empowered these men, women, and children were. I think it's remarkable. Verse 46 says, For they heard them speak with tongues... And magnify God. Now, it is not the natural impulse of the human heart to magnify God. Uh, We magnify ourselves like that spoiled teenager that I started this sermon with. Our natural impulse is only to think about ourselves. And it doesn't bother us if we hurt other people's feelings so long as our feelings are not hurt. We don't tend to care. And so much of the pursuit of spiritual gifts is self-absorbed. So much modern worship is self-absorbed. That is not the way the Spirit works. We want everything to make us happy. But something very odd happens when the Spirit of God comes upon us. Now, He does make us happy as a side benefit, but that's not where He makes our focus. When the Spirit of God falls upon us, we lose sight of our own importance and we begin to see the greatness of Jesus and the greatness of the Father. Why? Because Jesus says that the role of the Holy Spirit and the passion of the Holy Spirit is to glorify the Son and through the Son to glorify the Father. And so the moment we are baptized by the Spirit and you see the same characteristic every time a person is filled with the Spirit, the Spirit enables us to do something we cannot do in our own strength. We cannot do. And this verse mentions two things that were supernatural. There was the supernatural gift of tongues. That's the ability to speak in other human languages. And then secondly, there was a supernatural giving of humility, a God-centeredness, a desire, an impulse of the heart to magnify God. The first relates to the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the second relates to the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's been a lot of controversy as to whether uh, tongues always uh, has to accompany uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, here it was a sign that they had been so baptized. It was. I think we can freely acknowledge that, no problem. And I believe we can say as soon as the Holy Spirit has baptized a person, there is always going to be some gifting that is conferred. The Spirit's going to be working within that person. But I think it is a big, big mistake, and Pentecostals have made this mistake, to say that you aren't baptized with the Spirit until you speak with tongues. Let me give you some examples. Jesus was baptized with the Spirit and empowered by that Spirit in Luke, and yet He did not speak in tongues. In Acts 3, 18 through 19, there are people converted there, and yet there are no tongues. In Acts 4, there's a filling of the Spirit, but no tongues. In Acts 8, 17, there was baptism, but no tongues. In Acts 8, 37 through 38, the Ethiopian eunuch did not speak with tongues, nor did Paul in Acts 9, 17 through 18. And yet it's clear he was baptized by the Spirit. And so the Pentecostal doctrine that says you are not baptized until you speak in tongues is a false doctrine. However, we can safely say 
that everyone who has been regenerated and baptized, initiated into the kingdom, has been given some spiritual gift. There are lots of different spiritual gifts, but he has been given some spiritual gift the moment he has been initiated into the kingdom. God wants him to have this for his uh, kingdom living. First uh, Peter 4.10 says, as each one has received a gift. There are no exceptions. First Corinthians 12.7, but the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Verse 11 says, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. And I give a couple of other examples there. God sovereignly distributes his gifts, but he does so to every believer. And so the church is not a two class system, Uh, a class of people who have spiritual gifts and they're very important and a class of people who don't have spiritual gifts and they're not important. No, God says the moment they've been initiated into the kingdom, God says you are going to be important for kingdom service and I'm going to equip you and I'm going to empower you to be able to serve me effectively. We need each other. Every single person is so gifted. But while gifts are important, the fruit of the Spirit is also important. And it's not just God-centeredness that the Spirit engenders in our hearts when we become regenerated. He gives all kinds of graces. Uh, He gives peace and joy and love and patience and many other graces that we're going to need. And so we can say that what Cornelius received was exactly the same thing that the apostles received in Acts chapter 2 without going to the errors that Pentecostals have gone to. It's exactly the same thing. Look at verse 47. He says, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Notice that word just. They have, they have something that was just like what the apostles had. It was exactly the same phenomenon and I believe we do as well. Until the second coming, we have the enormous privilege of being ushered into kingdom living by the Spirit of God, equipped, empowered to be able to live the kingdom as we ought. And so what I want to urge you to to, is to value Christ by opening his book and receiving the chief key that was bookmarked in that book, which is the Holy Spirit through whom all of these other blessings come. Uh, He has ushered you in. Now, I don't need to say much about the sign of spirit baptism, which is water, but let me quickly make four points. First, just as spirit baptism is monergistic with only one person acting, water baptism is monergistic as well. All the recipient does is he passively receives the water. Okay? The Greek word for forbid in that verse there, verse 47, is to hold back. So literally you could translate it. Can anyone hold back water? And so the movement is with the water being brought to the person, not the person being brought to the water. And it's symbolizing the fact that we're saved by grace. We're empowered by grace. We're filled by grace. It's not our own doing. We don't earn it. We receive it by faith. Everything we receive, our sanctification is by faith. Second, the water baptism clearly symbolizes the spirit baptism. It does not symbolize our death, burial and resurrection. Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He saw a mandate to connect the two. And throughout the book of Acts, you'll see exactly the same thing from the preaching of John the Baptist and on. Water baptism symbolizes spirit baptism. Now, what you believe water baptism symbolizes will determine your mode. If you believe that it symbolizes the baptism of the Holy Spirit, 
then you're going to baptize by pouring. If you believe that symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, well, of course, you're going to do it by immersion. And so what you believe it symbolizes makes a big difference. Third, this baptism was done under authority. Cornelius does not take it upon himself to baptize his family or to baptize himself. There is a movement nowadays where people, just fathers, baptize their, their families on their own. But this indicates it was done under church authority. Verse 48. And he, that is Peter, and he commanded them, there's the authority, to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And that last phrase has actually caused some concern. There is a group of Pentecostals, it's a smaller group, uh, United Pentecostals, who are called the Jesus-only Pentecostals. And they believe we do not baptize rightly because we do not baptize in the name of Jesus only. We baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what they, uh, they argue for. And here it says we're to baptize in the name of the Lord, which is just one person. And they say that this person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, they do have some good arguments that trouble Christians. And I know some of you are friends with United Pentecostals. And so I want to at least go over their arguments that they would bring up. And if you would turn with me to them, Acts 2, verse 38 is the first one that they bring up. I think it's important that we understand uh, where they are coming from. Acts 2, verse 38. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They say that clearly shows our baptism should be into the name of Jesus Christ, not into the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Next one is Acts 8 and verse 16. It says, For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They say, see, there is no trinity there whatsoever. They're baptized in the name of Jesus. Okay, take a look at Acts 19. Acts 19 and verse 5. It says, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So the question is, how do we reconcile that with the Great Commission where Jesus commands us, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Now, that's a clear command. Okay? You can't overturn a clear command just with examples uh, from history of how people did something. But here's what the Jesus-only Pentecostals uh, do. And there's articles all over the web that write this up. They say, this was a forgery in Matthew 28. Uh, It should not be a part of Scripture. It never was intended to be a part of Scripture. Well, that's very convenient, but there's no evidence uh, that they can adduce that that uh, is the case. Very convenient. The answer really is quite simple. The answer is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have the same name. It's the name Jehovah, is it not? Uh, Zechariah 14.9 says, The Lord is one and His name is one. There are three persons in the Godhead, but there are not three lords. There are not three gods. There is one Lord. The, the, the Lord is one and His name is one. Uh, in my sermon on the Trinity, I showed a number of Old Testament passages that show three divine persons in the Old Testament talking to one another, and they're all called Jehovah. Uh, for example... In Isaiah 48:16, Jehovah is saying this, 
Jehovah God and his spirit have sent me. It's a reference to Messiah. So Messiah is called Jehovah and he says, Jehovah God and his spirit have sent me. In Isaiah 44, 6 through 7, you have Jehovah anointing Jehovah. And there are not uh, three gods, but one God, one Lord, one name, but they exist in three persons. And by the way, the name Jesus itself means Jehovah saves. So there is no contradiction whatsoever. Uh, We are baptizing in the name of Jesus. We are baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But as I end this sermon, I want to urge you to do three things. First of all, I want to I want you to thank God that he has given to you the book, the proverbial book of Jesus Christ and pursue Christ with your whole heart. Don't insult the father by desiring something, insisting you want something better than Jesus. Value him as your chiefest treasure. He is the pearl of great price. Second, thank God that he has, by his spirit, initiated you into kingdom living. He has empowered you for kingdom living. The Holy Spirit is the first and the most important key that when you open that book of Jesus Christ will fall out into your laps. Uh, He is one that you ought to value. And third, now that you have been baptized into the spirit, don't quit. Don't quit. Now that you've been baptized, don't stop being filled. Don't put down that book of Jesus Christ and ignore all of the bookmarks that he has destined for your enjoyment, that he has destined to fall out into your lap. There are so many keys that will fall into your lap as you come to the Holy Spirit. Every day be filled with the Spirit and he will usher you into these kingdom blessings. Amen. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that this initial filling is to be just one of many throughout our lives of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Enable us, Father, to rejoice into that. And Father, to by faith receive that on a daily basis. Help us not to have any day where we do not seek that filling, that empowering that comes from Your Holy Spirit to do the things that we need to do. Help us not to try to live the Christian life in our own grin and bear it strength. But Father, help us to live spiritual lives. Help us to walk in the Spirit and pray in the Spirit and to sing in the Spirit and all of the other things we're commanded to do in the Spirit. Father, may we recognize that everything flows from Christ by Your Spirit. And may we, Father, be empowered and have joy in our Christian walk as we uh, walk uh, by faith and uh, not by the flesh. And we give You the praise and the honor and the glory for the things that can be accomplished as we uh, enter into this. In Jesus' name. Amen.